College football fans, and welcome to episode 147 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host Alex Schmitz, and I'm joined as always by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, Cornhusker fans and college football fans. And you were talking in fast pace there. You're in a hurry today, Alex. <laughs> well, what can I say? There's a lot going on in the world of college football. That's right. Yes, we got a lot to get to today. Uh, this is a father-son duo here to talk about college football by college football fans for college football fans. And today we're going to be talking about some uh, national news, including some potential rule changes coming to college football for this year, uh, as well as uh, some shakeups in the Nebraska college football world and excitement about the upcoming spring practices. Yes, absolutely. Just lots of positive things going on in Lincoln right now. Yes, which is uh, good to hear after the years we've had recently. So we had a couple of topics um, that we uh, were going to mention on our previous podcast, but we've kind of moved them to today. Um, and one of them that's quite interesting is uh, the NCA Football Rules Committee has submitted a proposal to a different NCA committee that's going to uh, meet on uh, April 20th. Um, and so they proposed a few uh, rule changes uh, for college football. And they kind of vary from minor to more significant. Uh, so I'm going to go over the three of them uh, that they discussed. Um, one would involve uh, prohibiting consecutive timeouts, uh, which you usually only see in scenarios like icing of a kicker. Um, so that would kind of uh, make that harder to do. Um, and it says also uh, penalties at the end of the first and third quarter would carry over and be enforced on the first play of the next quarter uh, versus right now, where if there was a penalty, but the clock is ex expired, they would give you one more play right to play out that uh, new down. Um, so they would just move that over into the next quarter. All these rules are basically designed uh, for the most part to encourage the games to go faster and, uh, I think both for TV reasons and because they're thinking that it will uh, lead to less player injuries, right? If there's just less plays overall. Um, so just trying to speed up the game in various ways. The bigger one, though, is in regards to uh, first downs. So this rule would say that the game clock will continue to run when a first down is gained, except if you're within uh, the two minute mark at the end of each half. I believe this is the current rule in the NFL, so they're trying to move college football closer in that regard. There was even a discussion of having uh, the clock run after an incomplete pass. However, that rule did not make it uh, beyond the beginning stages, I believe, of the discussion, uh, which I'm very thankful about because that would have been a major change. Um, but what are your thoughts on these uh, three potential rules? So I, I would agree with you that the one that they tossed out would have been a just absolutely monumental change to the sport and, and not in a good way. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm going to say two things. First, I agree with you. And, and in the write-ups that have been provided, you know, through various sports organizations and stuff, obviously we're not able to interview the, the committee within the NCAA that's doing this. So you're, you're reading their minds as far as what the purpose is of why they are wanting to make these changes. But bottom line is they want the games to be shorter. Well, I have a couple of really simple suggestions for shortening the game, and it has to do with some of the stupid 
back to back uh, timing of timeouts or I mean of uh, commercials rather uh, and and how they uh, how often they they do uh, commercial sequences where you know a team scores a touchdown then there's commercials then they they come back do the extra point then there's commercials then they uh, kick the ball off and then there's commercials right if you want to disrupt or or minimize the disruption of play and time clock movement then don't do that right so in my opinion uh, i think they should try to hold the um the uh, television partners the the media partners to task a little bit as well uh, with regard to this issue of you know the games being too long uh, as far as the three specific rule changes uh, you know, um, obviously that, that third one was the, that you mentioned was the, is the big one. I, I get that it will definitely reduce the number of plays that, that, that happen in a game. You know, it will shorten the, the, the amount of time that it takes to complete a game because of that. I am never really one who's uh, all in favor of something that shortens the number of plays. I think the game of football has, has historically, if you go back to the origins of the sport, was a game that was supposed to be a game of attrition to a certain extent, okay? And so uh, doing things like this, although it does achieve the objective of trying to make it fit into the three-hour television window, it actually is very, very negative for teams like uh, Nebraska or any other team that, that has an environment or a circumstance that would motivate them to want to run the football because – uh, we need as many plays as we can so that a team that is, if you commit to being physical, then you want as many snaps as you can get so you can wear your opponent down. And this becomes more difficult when that clock is continuously running. Additionally, now to stop the clock, again, it, it reemphasizes the importance of passing the football, right? And that, that pass incompletion that stops a clock becomes even more of a valuable asset, even though it's a negative play, right? You throw a, you throw a pass, you, you don't complete the pass, so that's the negative result, but at least you get the benefit of the clock stopping. So from a strategic standpoint, that's a huge deal. And if now, instead of a, a third and one where if you've got a good running game and you can be confident that, hey, I'm, I have a high degree of confidence that we're going to get a first down here and then we're going to be able to stop the clock and then we'll be able to run another play. Now you need to know that, okay, I'm going to run this football and if I get the first down, the clock's going to continue to run. So that's a negative thing. Right. Um, I have a few things to say. Um, to start with, I'll just ha- uh, quote this article that I read that was talking about the, uh, the rule changes. Yeah. And this is from uh, Kirby Smart, who's the co-chair of this committee and, of course, the head coach of Georgia. So the quote is, this yeah. rule change is a small step intended to reduce the overall game time. It will give us some time to review the impact of the change. Um, so they are viewing it primarily from this perspective of shortening the game, like, like we mentioned before. Um, and I'm, I'm indifferent on the first two changes, the ones about consecutive timeouts and the penalties at the end of the quarters, you know, those I'm fine with, you know, they're not that big of a deal. Um, but the first down one is definitely the meaty one that deserves some discussion. Um, to your point, on the one hand, it definitely hurts teams if you're more running based and you're trying to uh, chase a lead, right? If you're trying to make a comeback and time 
is of the essence now running the football burns even more clock uh, than it currently does. On the other hand, if you had a lead and you're trying to run the ball to run out the clock, that becomes even more effective, right? Because now the clock isn't stopping when you get a first down and you want the clock to keep rolling. So it, that is it, true. You know, there's a balance in the the strategic differences. It would add to the game. Um, and I suppose one thought process could be that in the good old days, in the past, right back when Nebraska was really dominant, um, almost all teams were very run focused, right? And there was much less passing. And so even though you were the clock was stopping when you got a first down, you were pat, you were running it much more than you're passing it, and so you weren't getting those incomplete passes that would you know put a total stop to the game clock. Whereas now we have a lot more passing, and so that's more common. Um, right. So that thus has, like you say, lengthened the game and made it so that, uh, you know, passing focused teams can score in a very short amount of game clock time uh, in a way that you just didn't see 30, 40 years ago. Right. Well, and 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 the, the other uh, thing that uh, about that is um, when uh, with with today's offenses, whether you're running it or passing it, you know, so many of them are hurry up. And they're snapping the ball way faster. You know, not a lot of teams huddle, all that sort of stuff. So uh, the safety element of this, of reducing the number of plays per game, well, you know what? The last time we did a set of rule changes that were designed to shorten the game, what did what did coaches do? They sped up the offense, right? So the idea of of making rule changes to try to shorten the game is 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 not a new conversation, okay? And what exactly they did to 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 try to do that, I, I can't I'd have to do some research and get back to you. Right. But but I know that to be true. OK, so just accept that for, for right now, for the sake of this conversation. My point is, is that the reaction by the coaches in the sport, uh, whether it was directly because of that or just the evolution of the sport, uh, teams gravitated to a faster paced offense and the number of plays per team went up, not down. Okay. Uh, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, if you're an offensive coach, you want to give your, your offense as many opportunities to be successful and score as you can. And so, um, that's one of the advantages of the fast paced offense. You are absolutely right. If you're trying to protect the lead, then you want to be able to grind clock and shorten the game. Uh, and again, uh, you're, you're absolutely right that this change will will help with that gear, so to speak. When people want to shorten the game, uh, they're going to be able to do that even more effectively now because of that clock not stopping. Um, that's great for somebody who's got a lead, right? But if you're a running team who's who's trying to play catch-up, it's, it's going to be even more difficult to r- remain patient with your offensive prowess, your offensive um, uh, capabilities. Uh, and so people will have... To, will feel compelled to abandon the running game and move towards more of an aggressive passing structure because of that rule change. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I was also thinking um, it would probably also incentivize more running plays. If you are going to run it running plays that are designed to go to the edges and go out of bounds, right? Cause that's still in place. You know, the clock will stop until the ball is placed back on the field. 
Um, right. So like a temporary stoppage. Yeah. Right. So that's one way to slow down the clock. If you can't rely on getting the first down to stop the clock anymore. Um, and obviously it should be said that, uh, this, all three of these rules we're discussing have not been implemented. Like I said, on the 20th of April, they're going to a different panel. That's going to decide if they are approved or not. Um, right. There's another element to this that I think will come into play more than people realize. The, the the two timeouts in a row in a row thing, I totally get that when people are using them at the end of a half to you know or a, a, just as someone is about to kick a field goal, and so to try to ice the kicker, I get that. But there are numerous situations that I can recall over the many years that I've watched the sport where a team calls a timeout because they want to make sure they get the right personnel on the field or they, they want to change the play because the coach sees at the line of scrimmage that, that uh, you know, there's just a bad matchup situation. So he needs to call a timeout to get, get us, get the team out of the play that it's in. Okay. And, uh, but now you call that first timeout and then something is wrong. The second time somebody's not lined up, right. You, you change the play. You got the wrong personnel in there. The wrong guy came off the field, whatever. Now you don't have the choice to call a second timeout in a row because this rule exists. And it really doesn't have anything to do with icing a kicker or doing that sort of a thing. But it is really critical because that play could be very, very important to the outcome of the game. You know, right. again, we've talked about in the past, most college football games boil down to five or six plays, right? Five or six plays are the things that swung the game from one way to another. And if, and if because of this new rule, a coach is unable to stop a negative thing from happening or a not as positive as it should be uh, circumstance because he can't call a second timeout in a row, to me, that is, that's a significant change to the game. I, I totally am in favor of it if it was maybe more uh, specifically targeted at timeouts used to induce delays for, you know, kicker uh, icing a kicker or delaying uh something like that at the end of a half as opposed to a, a genuine you know i need to call a timeout because my team is not lined up properly well and the other thing i thought about just as you were discussing that was uh what i've seen more commonly is near the end of a game right or at the end of a half say that you're trying to score before you know the clock runs out and you've got right. two timeouts and right. you you want to use both of them in a roll because you don't have much time left um right now i i guess you couldn't do that so you would have to uh maybe you'd have to just give up a play and spike the ball right um to yep. force the clock to stop uh and in in lieu of using a timeout Right. And so now that quarterback and the whole team, in fact, the whole offensive team needs to have their head on straight. Right. That's a whole new level of specialized, uh, you know, special circumstance coaching that you're going to have to do to say, OK, now the situation is we've we've got two timeouts left. We've only got 25 seconds left on the play clock. We're calling this play with the intention that this play is going to get us a first down, which would stop the clock in the last two minutes of the half. Right or the last two minutes of the game. But if the play is a negative play, um, we can't call a second timeout. Let's let, so that may, that, that will motivate me not to do a running play because now if I do a running play and I don't get the first down, then I, I then I'm, I can't call a second timeout. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, there's just, just all kinds of very specific 
circumstances where doing the consecutive timeout things was truly part of the game and the strategy of the game. Now, it, it you could also argue that calling two timeouts in a row to ice a kicker is a strategy decision too, but it's a pain in the ass one that's kind of goofy, right? It's disjointed and it causes uh, these extended delays where people are just waiting, waiting around. There's not really anything going on. All we did was call the timeout to make this kicker think about it for a little while longer. Right. And that's the kind of thing that extends the game. And they're thinking we should be able to get rid of that. Well, in, in doing that, they're also going to affect all these other sets of circumstances. Right. Yep. Which, you know, now, so having discussed this with you, uh, I think my position is I'm fine with the, the one about if there's a penalty at the end of a quarter, you know, it, it, it moves over to the next quarter. Like that's fine, whatever. Um, and then with the double timeouts one, if maybe, like you said, maybe if it was specified in terms of kicking situations, you're not allowed to do consecutive timeouts, you know, that would get rid of the majority of the times where we feel like it's being used flagrantly, let's say, uh, and keep right. the strategy in place. Um, and, and then just the total X on the whole, uh, you know, keeping the clock running after a first down because we've discussed how that uh emphasizes things even more in terms of the passing game, which the sport has already moved in that direction over the past, you know, 20 years. Right. Um, right. So, well, but I'm, I'm here to tell you, you're right. So I, I, I fall in line with you completely in that I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the end of quarter uh, penalty thing that that is actually a good idea for speeding up the game. And, and I, uh, but the, but the stopping the clock, uh, or not stopping the clock rather on a first down. I, I dislike, even though that is the NFL rule and it's more like NFL. Well, college football needs to stop worrying about trying to be the NFL. You're not the NFL. It's a different game. There's a different set of circumstances. These players don't practice uh, like NFL teams practice. Okay. They're also students who are going to class all week long. They got a lot more stuff going on in their head. So being able to have the sophistication that is necessary to maximize their performance is even harder uh, in terms of the, the, you know, the coaching aspect, I think in college than it is in the pros in the pros, you know, that's your job. That's all you got, right? That's what you do in college. There, there's a lot more going on, right? Especially today. So um, especially with NIL and everything, now these kids need to be focused on building their social media brand and all, all the shit that they've got going on. Right. So, so I just I just think that, uh, um, that that that's not going to be positive for my enjoyment of the sport because it means less plays and it means less emphasis on the running game and more emphasis on the passing game. And um, it's going to negatively affect comebacks. You know, the, the last minute uh, comebacks where, a, where a, 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 a team that is the underdog comes back and wins because the the the, the favorite you know kind of seizes up and gets tight in a in a tight game late in the game it's gonna be harder for that team to pull off the uh the comeback right that that lesser opponent right. because right. they're gonna have less time to do it right well on the one hand uh they'll still during the two minutes right which is when most of these like last minute comebacks happen they would yeah. still get the time the time out the time stoppage uh, from a first down, but on the opposing side, like we said, the team that's in the lead will be able to kill more clock before that two minute point. 
Um, exactly. So, you know, thinking about how many games came down, right, like the last 10 seconds of, the, of a game, you know, right. what if you never had those 10 seconds because the other team yeah. killed that time? Yeah, exactly. I, I just I, I think it's going to have a more dramatic effect than people realize. And, and I, in my opinion, not in a good way. However, I will say that the uh, be, because of the power of media and, and the complaint, the negative, if you will, of games going, you know, three and a half hours plus, right? Three hours and 40 minutes is viewed as a negative enough thing for the sport in terms of being able to slot it into time slots and all that throughout the course of the day with all this broadcasting that we do, that the, all three of these will pass. I will be shocked if these don't all pass. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, and I guess just for within the NCAA, you know, they probably uh, like the idea of, you know, well, our internal team did all this discussion and came up with these ideas. So they've already done a lot of thought and work into this. So let's, let's go ahead and improve it. You know? Well, Well, here's my, here's my hope that what smart said, right what he said as one of the uh, committee members is accurate that they're going to give it a go. That means they're going to reevaluate it after a year or two and consider moving back in the other direction. If they determine that it has affected the game in ways they didn't anticipate it, you know, the unintended consequences kind of aspect of this. Right. Uh, And if some of the negative aspects that I'm talking about and that you've shared uh, actually start to be exhibited and and there's a realization that this has negatively affected the entertainment value of the game and all that sort of stuff even though it has shortened the clock okay is that a net positive for the sport right you know so but i i, I think that's a battle uh, that has long been lost and i'm just gonna have to accept that these things are gonna happen <laughs> there we go. So now that we're about 20 minutes in the podcast, how would you like to uh, open your beverage there? Oh, what? Well, so, yes. Okay. Let's do that. <laughs> yep. I've got one of my sparkling ices again here. I'm, okay. So this is the other advantage of, of what I'm doing, Alex. Instead of having a beer today, I am uh, coming to you and I'm, I'm, I'm having an, a nice little uh, on-the-rocks glass of Traverse City Whiskey Company's uh, barreled uh, straight bourbon whiskey. Uh, this is a, a local favorite of mine. And you've been there a few times when you've back been back in Traverse City, a great local uh, distillery uh, who's won some national awards for having the uh, best small batch bourbon in the country. Um, so it's absolutely fabulous. Uh, it's got a great flavor. Um, and I really, really enjoy this this bourbon uh, it, it makes great what we call Michigan mules, which is a, a, a mule drink that uses this uh, bourbon instead of vodka. And that's what I'm enjoying right now. So cheers to that. Here we go. All right. And they should hire you as their spokesman. The way you yes. went off like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, now, one topic we discussed on the previous podcast was rumors about uh, additions to the Pac-12, which included uh, South Dakota State and uh, I think it was uh, Methodist, one of the Methodist schools. Uh, San Diego oh, okay. State, not South Dakota State. Nope. Yeah, you got that one wrong. Okay. Uh, sorry. That's San Diego State, which is right there in California, obviously. Yes. That makes and is a very good football 
Yep. Yes. Yep. So San Diego State and then uh, was it SMU, Southern Methodist yes. University? Yeah. And another Texas school. I felt like there was another Texas school that was discussed. Well, th- that's the two we talked about last time. Um, okay. Now, there have been no official confirmations about either additions or subtractions from the Pac-12 since we last talked. Um, however, there have been plenty of rumors and rumblings about um, schools being interested in leaving the Pac-12 because they're still in their ongoing media negotiations and some of the bigger schools are trying to you know, kind of get uh, their share of the pie rather than splitting things up equally, like saying, you know, well, we, we're bringing it into eyeballs, so we should get more of the money, et cetera, uh, along with the Pac-12 just being in the weakest uh, kind of spot of the Power Five conferences right now in terms of financials and overall viewership and all that stuff. Um, so once again, nothing is official, um, but it's sounding like we're gearing up for some uh, shakeups there. Right. Well, I, I know they're... They're, they're negotiating uh, heavily with not only the traditional media members, you know, the Foxes, ESPNs of the world, but they're also doing all the uh, uh, streaming services, including Apple and Amazon and, and people like that, right? Right. So they're trying to, you know, be the, the leader of that transition maybe or, or movement into the streaming side of, of the world. Uh, but the reality is, is that I don't know that those organizations are in a position to provide the kind of money that would put that, um, USC and UCLA reduced PAC 12 group into the stratosphere of a competitive per school payout, right. Compared to even the big 12. I mean, that's really that this becomes a battle for survival between the big 12 Pac-12 and the ACC, the other three of the Power Five, other than the Big Ten and the SEC, those three conferences are the ones that really have to fight. All right. Now the ACCs is made a little bit more complicated because of the length of their contract and their commitments to rights that go out to like 2036. I mean, they made a huge mistake and and now are being held to the fire on it. And and that's a whole nother conversation. But Let's focus on the two that seem to be the most active right now, which is the Pac-12 and the Big 12. I think the Big 12 is actively having conversations with some Pac-12 schools about joining the Big 12 and the Big 12 becoming a, uh, a super conference of at least 16, if not going all the way to 20. I, I think there is some conversation among the Big 12 because, again, one of the advantages they have of having – no longer having a, a you know one or two big boys right because Texas and OU left they are now a, a consortium of schools that would all be viewed as relatively equal on the on the media rights and uh, fan base structure does that make sense mhm yeah and so there's not any one big boy that kind of can come in and dictate the terms and so the idea of the Big 12 being able to expand to, to say, 20 schools or even 24, all right, and basically uh, just go out and consume most of the Pac-12 schools, all right, as well as com- combine with the schools they're already adding to get back to 12 schools, the BYUs and, and the uh, Central Floridas, right, that they're bringing in. Uh, and all of a sudden, you have a you have a, a coast-to-coast conference, much like the Big Ten has become, uh, where you've got schools in on the East Coast with with uh, West Virginia and, uh, or not East Coast, but I mean, Easterly area 
uh, West Virginia, you've got, um, and you've got UCF now in Florida, right? That are part of the Big 12. And you got, and then you go all the way out to maybe uh, one of the Arizona schools and the and Colorado. I know ASU, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah were the four that were talked about the most frequently, and that would you know get them to from twelve to sixteen. But then you know you could see them going ahead and saying, "Hey, you know what? If we're going to do that, we'll, we'll go ahead and extend an offer to Stanford and Cal and Oregon State. I, I don't know, you know, they could come up with some other numbers that get them." bigger you understand the logic yeah yeah though i have always kind of thought in these uh, talks about conference realignment that once you know once one of the uh the conferences kind of fires the 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 pistol if you will the kind of the triggers the the run to get to a, a super conference basically to become like a 20 team conference or whatever then that's kind of the because to get that and to have teams of relevance, right? Like they basically have to chomp up, you know, what's left of the Pac-12, and then all the remaining schools would kind of panic, right, and try to go elsewhere, you know. And right. then it's kind of like uh, everything's on the table at that point in terms of both the SEC and the Big Ten and the ACC, maybe all trying to, you know, increase the size of their rosters too, you know, to yes. see where things land. Exactly. It's a musical chairs thing. Like, I don't know how much conversation, for example, the Big 12 is engaged in with, say, Washington and Oregon or even Stanford, for example, right? Which are, I think, the the three bigger boys left in the Pac-12 inventory and the ones that would be most appealing to the Big 10. Maybe Arizona's in that mix also because they're an AAU school academically. And so you could see the Big Ten having conversations like that. But the problem is the Big Ten's looking at that that landscape and saying none of those is going to bring enough money in in and of themselves individually to grow our per school compensation in a TV market, right, based on TV markets, which is why they haven't already invited them to join. I mean, if, if they felt that Washington, Oregon would add more money uh, than they're already paying out per school, they would have already been invited. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's the reality. Now, if you combine Washington and Oregon and say Stanford with um, Notre Dame and Clemson and Florida State from the ACC and you truly make yourself a national conference from coast to coast, now all of a sudden you've got to, you know, 20 team conference uh, in the Big Ten that would be phenomenal, right? Now they would only move in that direction if they if something caused them to to do it, because they need to have Notre Dame or that or Clemson or somebody else that comes into that mix rather than just Washington and Oregon because those two aren't enough. Right? Does that make sense? So there's all these different moving, and obviously that we're not doing that in a vacuum. Before we would ever get the opportunity to do that, you know darn good and well that the SEC would be having conversations with Clemson and Florida State and others as well. So uh, a bidding war of sorts could could break out. Uh, but uh, the, the tumbler that may, might make that happen is basically Big 12 ravaging the Pac-12 by taking it four schools from the Pac-12 and just devastating the Pac-12. So now their media rights negotiation is screwed. 
And now if, if you're Oregon State or Washington State, you're really freaking out, right? Uh, yeah. So so now you're you're going to the Big 12 and saying, hey, don't stop it. Don't stop at 16. Embrace 20. And, and they'd be making a pitch to say, take us, bring us along, and let's make this thing 20. And, and, and then if they do that, then, then, you know, uh, Oregon and Washington are looking for a lifeline from the big 10 and maybe they do that. And, 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 but I think the, if the big 10 was going to take that swipe, they would have already done it. Uh, I think they're waiting for something to happen on the ACC side. And I, I know there's a lot of work going on, uh, in the, in the, uh, courts system right now to figure out. Oh, is there a legal way for us to get out of this horrible contract that we have as an ACC that where we, where we committed our, our media rights till 2036. That was just so stupid. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and so somebody has got to figure out a, a legal path out of that. And, and, and the reality is since it's with ESPN, the only true legal path out of that is if the television partner was willing to agree. Right. And then the other member schools, would have to concede in some way and they'd have to get paid off. Well, ESPN would be more motivated to do that if they were joining the SEC, which ESPN right. is associated with. They're far less likely to do that if, if it's the Big Ten having the conversation because that's Fox, right? So, I mean, it gets really complicated. I know I just threw a lot out there. Yeah. I'm going to shut up and let you comment. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, just as you were talking there, I immediately thought, well, yeah, the if if the ACC took a dive, uh, but it was to the benefit of the SEC, uh, then ESPN might be open to that. Because I definitely, I don't know about Clemson, but I definitely feel like Florida State would be more inclined to be in the SEC than uh, the Big Ten, you know, just because of ge geography and culture and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, you're probably right. But Miami would probably rather be in the Big Ten because Miami academically is a very high-end school. Right. And so is Clemson. Clemson views itself as a as a as a higher end academic institution. I don't know if they're a member of the AAU or not, but so you could you could probably see the president side of those institutions saying, hey, we would rather be associated with the Big Ten if we could. Right. Definitely. Um, so we're going to move on from that. We'll obviously keep an eye on the whole conference realignment uh, situation, maybe do an emergency pod if need be, if the whole Pac-12 gets blown up here. I'm going to predict that something is going to happen with with the Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah thing and the Big 12. I mean, it's going to come to a head. That I mean, there's going to be a bunch of dialogue and it's either they're going to pull the trigger and do it or or they're not and if they don't, that means that the Pac-12 staved off elimination and uh and got a a negotiation with somebody that was good enough to, to please everyone. Otherwise it's going to happen. Big 12 is going to end up with them and they're going to end up at at least 16. Right. Seems that way. Um, now this is an interesting story. Uh, it's a bit older now um, during the, you know, recruiting period from this past uh, winter. Um, but there was a lot of talk about this uh, highly regarded uh, four-star quarterback named Jaden Rashada. Um who was uh, who initially committed to Florida, and the rumor going around, and then the, there were rumors, and then there was a big report filed by these journalists and stuff who looked into all this stuff. 
essentially saying that Florida was offering him a $13.85 million NIL deal to commit to Florida. And this one particular article had some of the commitments that he would have to do and how the payment structure works because it's like it starts off smaller than it would increase from year to year, you know, over his four year career. Um, and he ha- would have to do, you know, a certain amount of social media posts a month and, you know, go on a radio show and things like that. But it was the requirements to meet the NIL, you know, name, image, and likeness standard were very low. Uh, so it was one of those kind of hyperbolic examples of how crazy the whole NIL thing was getting. Right. Apparently this one was even too crazy for the crazy guys down there in Florida uh, because that negotiation for that deal fell through, even though he committed to Florida. Uh, so then he left Florida uh, and is now going to Arizona State, uh, which is the school that his dad played for. So that's more of a legacy, you know, commit to him. And the news I saw was that, uh, you know, he was certainly not getting paid anywhere near that amount of money to go to Arizona State. Um, but what was your initial reaction when you read about that news? Well, my initial reaction obviously was that 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 was crazy uh, to hear those numbers. And uh, I want to clarify one thing. This particular athlete um, uh, started their uh, career, um, uh, I mean, their commitment process at the University of Miami. And there was a com- uh, there was an apparent or that was uh, rumored again, rumored that he was uh, receiving about eight or nine million dollars in NIL money from the University of Miami. And then kind of overnight, he switched his commitment from there to Florida and the number grew to the 13 million dollar number. Right. So um, it's just an example of how, you know, because there are no rails on this whole NIL thing and and anybody who doesn't think that there's basically pay for play going on is, you know, got their head in the sand. So the reality is I don't think the the experts who follow recruiting closely believe that either the nine million or the thirteen million dollar were real. Right. And 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 I have read one from uh, a national uh, um, sports writer and recruiting expert, Mike Farrell, um, who is a long time with rivals and, and that sort of stuff is now on his own. He wrote, uh, you know, a piece about it. And he knows a lot of the players involved specifically in NIL at Florida. And and he ha- he basically said in his article that he had talked with them and they said under no circumstances was there ever a, a mutually agreed upon $13.85 million commitment that, that, that never existed in terms of it being truly mutually agreed to. Now, some people might have thrown out that number. There might have been conversations about putting together a package or whatever, but it was never formalized or anything like that. And, um, but it just calls to question then this whole process, right? That's the bigger issue. I mean, it's sad for this kid because he's now got a, a black mark against him. He is, he is, you know, damaged goods in the eyes of, frankly, a lot of um, NFL franchises are going to be very hesitant if he ends up having enough of a successful collegiate career to even be a, you know, an NFL prospect, there are going to be some, uh, uh, he's going to pay for it, so to speak, in terms of how uh, NFL teams view him. 
and he's going to have to have to demonstrate that that was a you know a moment of immaturity and all that and and you know convince people otherwise uh because um you know obviously you don't want to hire an employee that's going to be going that route right going to head down the social media make this public let's argue this uh disagreement out in public instead of keeping it private okay so i I was under the impression that like you know it had leaked out through you know journalists and rumors and things like that but you're saying that the kid himself made some of this public i i think i think the rumors well here's the thing there's no way that florida ever released any of that information because it was never formally committed to by them right so the university of florida never leaked it and certainly uh, it might have been leaked by Miami to say, well, you know, since since the rumor was that that Miami was offering him nine million, the only reason he would leave the University of Miami as a commitment and go to the University of Florida, it must have been that they offered him a better deal. So maybe maybe the you know, the rumor originated from somebody speculating about why he decommitted from Miami and went to Florida. But this is the problem with this unbridled uh, process, right? Uh, no one is held accountable for the truth. And it's equally likely that maybe his father and or other handlers around him were the ones who threw that out there just in, in the hopes of catching the big fish, right? Getting the, the life-changing money arrangement. But as you say, after the dust settles, he ends up committing to and signing um, a, a letter of intent to go play at Arizona State, where everyone acknowledges and, and, and knows that he is not getting anything near that in uh, NIL. In fact, I would be shocked if he's getting an NIL package that even approaches $2 million over the course of his career at this point. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, this... You know, we have a longer uh, trademarked dad rant about NIL and Transfer Portal and all that uh, scheduled yes. for later in the summer, I'm sure. Um, but, <laughs> but this is yes. just a, a one of the, the prime examples of how crazy the NIL thing is and how destructive it can be for the you know player involved, right? Because he went from, you know, potentially being a, a star quarterback at Miami or Florida now he's at Arizona State, which is, you know, like a solid school, but definitely a step down in terms of uh, competitiveness and prestige compared to where he was. Exactly. I just think that I'm hoping that examples like that one, and there's going to be countless others uh, under a, 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 of a variety of other different circumstances that hopefully motivate the powers that be. And, and when I say the powers that be, I, I, I think it's going to have to be the presidents of the universities with the recommendation and maybe even advice direction of a group of athletic directors from the power five conference schools that are going to say, Hey guys, we've got to get this under control. This has to somehow come back under the umbrella of the institutions so we can control this a little bit. And we, we need to be honest about the fact that this isn't about just NIL. This is now a true pay to play situation. And we've got to, we've got to come to terms with that. However we do it. Right. We got to set up a, a series of of rules or whatever that that really define it. And if and if they hold it out to not be pay for play and there really has to be basically name, image and likeness work done to earn that money. Well, then that's going to dramatically change all of those things. Right. 
Because if now all of a sudden these kids truly have to earn that money, they have to do appearances and they have to, they have to do all this social media stuff and things like that. And it's substantial because of the, uh, you know, the sponsors involved. Well, how many, how much time do these kids have? You know, right. they're, they're already going to school, playing a, a, a sport that requires 40 hours a week of their time commitment. When, when you include not just the 25 hours of, of um, a contact time that is allowed, but the ex- the extra stuff that all of them do in terms of weight training and, you know, study halls and all that stuff. Right. I mean, when you add that all up, it's 40 hours a week. They got a full-time job and they're going to school. Right. And now, and now, yeah, you're adding on NIL responsibilities yeah. on top of that. Yeah. Now the, the reality is a lot of NIL is, is there isn't much to it. Right. Because currently. it's not really about name, image, and likeness. It's about, we're paying you this amount of money to play for us. Right. It's pay for play. Right. And there are exceptions to that, right? That like we've seen that like, you know, you see these players in like real commercials or like billboards for companies and things like that. But uh, we know that a lot of the other thing is going on. Right. Exactly. And those types of things, the real ones, the real commercial stuff, I mean, those compensations are more in line with traditional sponsor relationships and they're not that they're not that much money. Right. Like like at the University of Nebraska, one of the volleyball players has gotten associated with um, the airport, the Lincoln Airport. And so there's big there's a big, uh, you know, stand up of her in the airport. Right. And Mm -hmm. she's marketing herself to the to have people use the Lincoln Airport. That's great. You know, she did a commercial with her walking down a runway and all this sort of stuff. Right. So now how much she got paid for that? Not that much, right? Not certainly not hundreds of thousands of dollars, not right. even close to millions of dollars. So that's name, image, and likeness. How the NCA intended for it to be, you know, people promoting a, a specially named coffee drink at the favorite coffee shop. Those are the kind of things, right? Right. It's going to get even more complicated because there's already a push among women athletes to be very aggressive about trying to trying to seek equity in compensation for name image and likeness between females and males right like title nine stuff yeah that's which which you know what it's the free market okay you get what you get right you get what your your uh what what somebody believes you're worth in terms of marketing uh, dollars to them right, right? but when you have these collectives that's where you're just basically getting people to contribute money to have a, a stash of cash that you can then hand out to people. Th- these are individuals. These are people like me who are fans of the sport saying, Hey, I'm going to give a hundred dollars a month to the, the, the university of Nebraska's collective so that they have money to give to players. Well, th- that's sponsorship. They're not, they're not going to be talking about my business, <laughs> right? They're not. Yeah. So, <laughs> likeness there for me. <laughs> no, so, no one's uh, holding a red wrench for you. You mean? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, now we're going to transition into the Nebraska side of this discussion. There's a few different things going on. And one cool thing that kind of got dropped on us as a bit of a surprise yesterday uh, was there was a good 50-minute interview discussion uh, moderated by the athletic director at Nebraska, Trev Albers, uh, between our current coach, Matt Rule, and then the legendary Tom Osborne. 
um, kind of going back and forth, talking to both of them about their different kind of coaching philosophies and back then versus now and things like that. And I thought it was a, it was a great discussion. You know, both Matt and uh, Tom were very well spoken and very, you know, generally complimentary to each other. One interesting thing I noticed was that uh, Matt talked about how uh, he has been studying, you know, old Nebraska film from like the glory days in the 90s and things like that, you know, and talking about how, oh, people say, well, you just ran it down their throats. But there was a lot more to that in terms of like the motions that you were doing and who was blocking who and things like that. You know, a lot of great complications and innovations that Tom came up with, not only on the field, but with things like the weight training program and the diet programs and all that sort of stuff. Um, And then the conversation kind of came to, well, how do you balance the old with the new in terms of keeping what Nebraska is traditionally good at, but then also doing the new things of this era because the rules have changed. You know, you can't run those exact plays that Tom used to. And other teams have caught up to us in terms of weight training and diet and having great facilities and all that sort of stuff, you know, and Matt didn't necessarily go into detail about what those innovations were, but, you know, basically said that, yeah, he's working on his own brand uh, to uh, make Nebraska stand out. Right. My uh, take was similar. I, I, I love the discussion. The first thing that struck me was, uh, you know, uh, obviously for, for those who may not know athletic director Trev Albers' history, Trev started his career primarily as a sports broadcaster and uh, sports commentator, uh, first with uh, uh, CNNSI, which was a previous entity of, um, of those two organizations merged for sports. And then uh, ultimately at ESPN, where he was uh, a, a commentator um, during the studio shows for many, many, uh, uh, well, not many, many, but for a few years uh, in that role. So he was very media savvy. He was always a well-spoken athlete, even when he was a co- collegiate student at Nebraska. But uh, you can just tell he's interviewed a lot of people and he did a great job of asking um, really broad questions, but leading them, uh, leading the discussion and allowing there to be some commentary back and forth and yet giving the platform to each of those uh, coaches, both coach Tom Osborne and coach rule um, to let them answer some of these questions. And um, I just thought the whole thing was just really well done. You could tell that uh, all three of them were fairly comfortable. I mean, Tom, Tom never comes across as completely comfortable in front of a TV, uh, but Trev Albers clearly is, and so is Matt Rule. Uh, and so that's the exciting thing for me to see is I, I think we, we have uh, um, a coach who's very, very comfortable in his own skin, and uh, he has a vision for what he wants to accomplish. And I don't think uh, there's any doubt about that, right? And he has the ability to articulate what that vision is. So that excites me that we have a coach that really knows how to do that. Because it's been a long time since, I, 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 you know, I mean, frankly, Tom knew exactly what he was doing, but he was a very quiet, understated guy. And he kept a lot of things close to his vest. And it was in the day and age before social media. So life was very different. But after Tom... There, there's not another coach we've had that even approaches what Matt Rule is in terms of the ability to interact with media. Right. Matt is is on a level that's different than any of the other coaches we've had since Tom. So, um, I mean, you went to Ohio University. You, you know how 
you know how uh, uncomfortable Frank Solich was around <laughs> around around a uh, camera uh, a camera. So that is really cool. And then w- what you also said, you know, that I, I think it's great that Matt uh, was able to take this opportunity because you've got a bunch of expectations out there because they've talked about wanting to integrate the fullback into their offense and they're wanting to run the football at Nebraska. But I think he just threw a, a little anchor out there to Nebraska fans to say, well, hold your horses, guys. You're not going to be seeing the Nebraska of old anytime soon because the reality is that's no longer legal. The chop blocks and the cut blocks uh, on the edge that our fullbacks used to do regularly and that our, our linemen used to do when pulling regularly are now considered illegal because so many blocks below the waist have become officially illegal in the sport but weren't back then, right? So right. a lot of those plays – just wouldn't be as effective uh, as they were, but but some of the fundamentals. He, he spent some time talking about the importance of blocking downfield. Both Tom and Matt Rule spoke extensively on this subject, and that's to me is huge because uh, uh, Tom Osborne was adamant about this as when he was a coach, and I can tell you this goes back to the 1970s when he started as a coach. And that is that, you know what, you, you can have great blocking at the line of scrimmage, but if you don't have wide receivers blocking, then that running play, it's going to be, it's going to go somewhere between three yards and 12. Okay. You have good blocking from your wide receivers where on every single play you're grading them and, and the expectation and every snap of practice is that you're blocking guys. And if you can knock them on their ass and de them, that's a good thing. And we're going to measure you on that. Okay. And what does that do? That makes that 12-yard run a 45-yard touchdown run. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw it play out time and time again for years and years and years. And our wide receivers were absolutely impeccable. One of the reasons why we had a surprising number of wide receivers who got into the NFL, and many of them were reasonably successful. Were they the superstars that got 1,000 yards receiving? No. A few of them were, but most were not. But a bunch of them stayed on rosters because they were so good at blocking downfield. Mm-hmm. Okay. And even in the NFL, that was valued enough to keep a guy around and be a first down wide receiver, even though he might only be throwing the ball, you know, 12, 15 times a year. Okay. But because he was a good blocker, you know, he would get 20 snaps a game. Right. Right. So, so that's where the value comes in. Cause that's something that I think Matt rule has picked up in his film study is, Hey, I see what these wide receivers did back then. Yeah. So I think these wide receivers are going to be in for a very interesting spring because they really loaded up on wide receivers in the recruiting process. And, and so we're going to have to have a, um, a thinning of the herd in the wide receiver room in a big way before next fall. And, and I think a big part of that is going to be evaluating how much they're willing to commit to the complete role of being a wide receiver at the University of Nebraska, which is going to include some very physical blocking. Right. Uh, And it'll be interesting to see. One thing I thought was interesting was that Tom made it a point to say, like, you know, I'm not here to be a cheerleader for Matt, but I have liked what I've seen, you know. And he uh, specifically mentions, like, you know, the Big Ten is a physical conference, right? And so you need to kind of adapt your game plan to 
that reality of dealing with those big boys up on the front lines and everything, um, which is quite the contrast to how Scott Frost came in at the beginning of his term where he was kind of like, well, I'm going to bring in my offense and I'm going to make the Big Ten change to me. And that that didn't end up happening. And he realized he had to uh, go the other way. So I'm sure Matt Rule has gotten the message there. Um, Right. There was also some good discussions also just then about like player management, you know, like uh, Tom spent a good bit of time talking about this unity council, you know, that was yes. like two players from each uh, position, you know, that would come together and with a weekly meeting and like, you know, just helping to iron out certain annoyances, you know, and just try to make things better overall f- as a conduit from like the players to communicate to the coaches. Um, and uh, Matt Rule talked about how, you know, he has a lot of former players on his current staff, his coaching staff. And he said how he sees that as a, as a great uh, kind of sign of his success and that, you know, he's got these guys who played for him, enjoyed playing for him. And now they're here, you know, uh, working for him because they like being around him clearly and think that he, you know, has the right football mind to be successful. So I thought those were all interesting points. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. And, and, and I, yeah, I think the reason, I mean, Tom has explained that the unity council, and that was a big factor, but the real fundamental message of that is that, you know, at some point as you build culture, cause they talked about defining what is culture, defining what is toughness. I mean, he hit on some really key questions, but, um, uh, in trying to build a culture, it's, it, it was central to Tom's greatest success, his best years, if you will, where after he had been able to establish a culture where the players self-regulated their team right tom tom did tom have to get involved absolutely he still had to get involved in all the issues of you know having 140 150 you know 18 to 23 year olds in your under your responsibility things are going to not always go great right there's kids are going to make mistakes but the real reality was is that a large percentage of those issues were dealt with and then um the unity council kept track of that stuff. And when players, you know, had accumulated enough negative points against them, so to speak, then they would be brought to the unity council's attention. And those guys would make the decision about whether or not this kid was going to be given more opportunities to write his direction or that, Hey, this is the second time you've been in front of us with this many points within a 12 month period, you're done. And, and then they would go to the coaches and say, we think this guy needs to be let go. You know, so it wasn't always Tom having to make that decision. The the team leadership was making it for him. Right. Well, it sounded to me from what he was saying that, like, if you had three violations, say you went to the unity council and they were hard on you. And then if you like hit four, then then you might come to Tom, you know, and he right. might have to. And if you went to five, you know, then that meant you were probably going to have less playing time or you might even be kicked off the team if it was serious enough. You know, and he right. talked about like. Well, one guy maybe had a violation and got, you know, uh, kicked off the team. And then another guy has another violation like that a month later. And he's like, well, but the f- and there's a difference in uh, in punishment. You know, people be right. like, well, why isn't this guy getting kicked off or whatever? When it's like, well, the first guy had a, had, had a number of warnings. Right. This wasn't his first serious offense or whatever, you know, and he right. still went and did it versus this other guy, you know. So the, I thought it was just an interesting insight into his mind in terms of that team management side of things. Exactly. And I, and I think that's huge because, uh, you know, a, 
if a coach gets into that game of having to be the policeman, um, it can get really complicated and, and you can end up with, you know, um, what do you want to say? Factions within your team, right? People who are 100% behind the coach, others who think the coach isn't being fair, all that stuff, which will always exist in any of those circumstances. But I mean, it's much more defined and, and the commitment to those subgroups is much more deep if, if they don't have this <clears throat> unity council of representation within the team uh, that is involved in that decision process, right? Ultimately, it's still Tom's decision, but he's now getting a lot of support and, and, and effort uh, within the team to do it themselves. And, you know, he is, he has sometimes talked um, about this story and I'm going to throw it out there and I, I might butcher it a little bit, but I, cause I think it was uh, not Jason, but Christian Peter, uh, Jason's older brother. Uh, uh, this was in the early nineties and uh, something wasn't right. Okay. And, as uh, some younger player was leaving the field and he was literally, you know, 60 yards away from where, where Christian was, but Christian observed something that that kid did wrong or overheard commentary from across the field that was inappropriate. And it was like the last straw and Christian turned around, you know, at, at 295 pounds and sprinted across that field and tackled that dude and basically told him in no uncertain terms that ain't ever happening again. Okay. And he did that in front of the whole team. Right. And that was Christian being, a, being a, a, a captain, being a leader and recognizing I need to nip this in the bud right now. Okay. And, you know, Tom, Tom was aware that this, this, of this issue, but he didn't have to deal with it because Christian did. And, and that's the kind of stuff that you want to get to. Right. Yep. So yeah, it was a great conversation. I, would love to see, you know, they can't roll out Tom super often in, I know, but I'd love to see more conversations with Matt Rule because, like you say, he is very well spoken um, and he's done mm -hmm. well in those sorts of situations. Um, he, he really has. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about is um, some exciting news. Obviously, next week from when we're recording this is the start of spring practice for Nebraska. Uh, and this weekend is actually a very important visitation weekend for Nebraska. Because we have uh, the number one uh, quarterback in the next year's class, Dylan Riola, visiting along with three other top 60 players for a total of 17 four to five star players, 28 total recruits coming to visit. So uh, a very, you know, interesting set of talent that's here. Obviously, we have Dylan Riola's father as one of our assistant coaches. So a lot of people, of course, are hoping that uh we might be able to snag him that way. Um, a lot of these guys aren't necessarily considering Nebraska as their first, second, or even third choice. Um, but just to have this kind of pedigree uh, at Nebraska, which doesn't usually get a lot of four- and five-star type players, uh, is pretty exciting. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing is that I don't know that we could go back in the, in the last 20, 25 years of, of uh, recruiting uh publicity and find a, a, a single weekend where there was this many highly regarded players all coming to visit Nebraska at the same time. And the cool thing is, is that now the, the downside of course is it's, it's late March. God knows what the weather's going to be like. You know, it's not like it, it's guaranteed that it's going to be beautiful and sunny, but on the positive side, 
the, this is a, a new coaching staff that's obviously filled with dynamic, energetic, young coaches. They've got a brand new facility that they're going to be walking all these guys through that's still being built. And all these guys are going to be looking at it and saying, this is going to be opening in like July or August. A lot of the football aspects of it will be done before this football season begins. So before any of those kids got to campus, that thing's all going to be complete and outfitted with all the latest and greatest of everything. So if you're a recruit, you're looking at a facility that's going to be one of the tops in the nation over the five years that you're there. Right. Um, And just to correct one thing, it's not Dylan's father that's on the coaching staff. It's his uncle. Oh, uh, okay. His father is a uh, is a legacy uh, uh, All American uh, and uh, Remington Award winning. Uh, I don't know if it was Remington, maybe it was Outland uh, Award winner father who played at Nebraska and has been a huge supporter of Nebraska athletics. Um, you know, over the years. Um, so there's a strong family tie to the university with the Riala family, but our lack of recent success certainly puts us uh, in the back seat of, uh, of Dylan's options, right? He, every team that you can name Alabama, Georgia, USC, you know, you name the, the great team, Michigan, Ohio state, they all want him, right? Every single one of them. It would be great if we get him right now. Most experts do not project us getting him. Uh, and a lot of these players, if you look down the list of all of these four stars, most of them uh, do not have Nebraska as their number one choice currently. However, you never know what's going to happen when you get a synergy of all that kind of talent getting together and visiting with the players, uh, the current players, as well as all the other fellow recruits that are going to be there. And uh, there could be a, a, a synergy that, that occurs, especially around Dylan. If Dylan ultimately ended up deciding and and the upset happens and he picks Nebraska, he could easily be the Pied Piper that brings another half a dozen recruits with him that say, hey, if if Dylan sees the bright future at Nebraska, I really enjoyed my visit there. I'm going to join him and we're going to be part of of the group that turns around Nebraska. And you know that's going to be a central message that Matt Rule gives to this entire group, right, as they come through this weekend. They are going to put on a show. And, you know, Nebraska still has phenomenal facilities for not just the the weightlifting aspect of it, but also for the technical aspects of it. We have a laboratory there that is actually sponsored not just by the University of Nebraska, but by the entire Big Ten that is located in Lincoln for athletic performance. And so we have, uh, the, you know, they talk about GPS. We have more technology on our athletes than hard, than almost anybody where we're evaluating their heart rate and their the, the speed that they're moving and how many reps they're getting. And I mean, these it's so scientific, it's not even funny. We have obviously a great nutrition history. We're the ones who founded uh, sports nutrition. We're the ones who founded strength and conditioning. And now we've got a brand new facility that's going to bring the latest and greatest of those technologies to the forefront for our athletes. So, I mean, as an athlete looking forward, they're going to say, okay, there's no doubt when they get done with that visit this weekend, they will have seen that this school is committed to excellence in every aspect except for one thing. Our recent history does not reflect it. Right. And if they can, if they can see beyond that, a lot of these kids 
could very well say, this is a place I could call home. Yeah. Well, that's the tough part with that whole, you know, you guys will be the group that helps me turn around Nebraska because that's been the recruiting pitch for since Bo Pelini, right? You know, and it hasn't quite happened in any of those years. Well, we've never we've never had a coach like Rule. That's true, right? And we were just speaking about his you know, eloquence and right. uh, you know and all the young coaches he has on his staff, right? Which is generally a benefit for recruiting and stuff. You know, the other thing is is that something that Nebraska continues to be the leader in the country in, and that is the life skills area. You know, we've always been involved in the life skills, and now I think our NIL has positioned itself not as the best NIL or the most financially supported NIL, but as an NIL that's some that's somewhat mature in terms of its organization and its messaging and how they go about presenting the opportunities. And they can demonstrate it not just for football, but way beyond football. That's the other thing about Nebraska that's special is it doesn't matter what the sport. If it's wrestling, okay, I'm telling you, Nebraska's going to get attendance at a wrestling meet that's way above average. If it's women's basketball, they're going to fill the, you know, the Pinnacle Bank Arena for a women's basketball game, right? They support athletics, track and field, you name it. The attendance, the commitment, the interest is there. And these kids are going to be able to see that and understand that before they leave. Yeah. Well, two quick things on that point. Uh, one, uh, we have so much commitment that we're going to have a volleyball game inside a football stadium coming up here <laughs> later this year. Um, so yes. that, that goes to show and, you. And your, and your mom and dad have already committed that on the day those tickets come on sale, we're buying them and we're going to go. <laughs> yep. So we're going to be part of that crowd. And number two, that gave me a little flashback to the conversation with Matt Rule and Tom Osborne, right? Because Tom brought up how, you know, it's a two-sided coin, right? There's a lot of attention. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of, you know, speculation and all sorts of stuff going on when you're the head coach of the football program at Nebraska. But you also get the sold-out crowds and the loving fan support and the financial support from, you know, the community and all that sort of stuff. And Matt said, like, yes, it's at a level that I've never seen before. And he was at the Carolina Panthers, an NFL team, right? So the media scrutiny at Nebraska is even crazier than that. Oh, yeah. Well, and and he's he's used some other examples. I mean, he went to a – or no, actually it was his offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator went to – do a presentation out in central Nebraska for, uh, you know, like a, a Kiwanis club or whatever, uh, a night. And, uh, he says, I thought there might be 40, 50 men at this meeting. And I walk in the door and there's 500 people in red. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he's like, I'm in a different world than I've ever been in before. Right. Yep. So, you know, that that's Nebraska for you. So hopefully, you know, fingers crossed that uh, visit goes well next week and that, you know, spring practice gets off to a good start. We'll definitely be coming back for a podcast later in April to talk about spring practices and the spring game, of course, which will be yes. uh, very much uh, hyped up, I'm sure, with a lot of people excited to see what Matt Rule has been cooking behind the scenes. So uh, it'll be exciting. Well, a couple of things about spring practice. So, so both the offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, and Matt have all basically said they, they, you know, they've been spending this last five weeks or whatever that they've had together. You know, they've been having to figure out who they're going to be. Right? What is their offense going to look like? Really? Like they did, they needed to have their staff come together and blend. 
all of their experiences and 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 you know with a with an overarching philosophy of what uh, Satterfield wants on offense and what Tony White wants on defense and then what Matt obviously wants the overall team to look like. So they've been they've been intensely in these meetings, you know, arguing uh, for this and that and the other thing, right? And so they're settling in on that as they go into this first spring for themselves. And, uh, you know, with, an, with a mind towards being flexible. But the, the point or the message he made was, I do not want to come out of spring practice saying, oh, I wish we would have introduced the, the team to X, Y, and Z. They want to throw it at them. So these kids, their heads are going to be spinning during this spring practice. So it's going to be very interesting to see if we are just an absolute mess <laughs> come the spring game because they are going to have been so aggressive at introducing so much offense and so much defense to these kids that they're just not going to be comfortable with it yet. You know what I mean? Like there just needs to be more reps before it all comes together. So I suspect they're just going to be throwing everything they can at the wall early in spring. And then as they start to get closer to the spring game, they're going to tighten it up and, and hone it into a, a, a simpler game plan and a simpler approach for the last week or so, and then try to get enough execution efficiency that they can, that they can demonstrate, you know, a little progress uh, to the fans on uh, that uh, spring game. And Dylan Rayala has already indicated he's going to be back for the spring game. So he's already visited Nebraska like three times, and he's going to be visiting Nebraska next weekend. And then again, within a, a month later uh, or so at the spring game. Right. I mean, yeah, for, you know, the other kids are, you know, a different discussion, but for him specifically, obviously there's a clear family and legacy tradition there, you know, his uncle's currently coaching there, you know, so I think we're definitely in the like top five conversation of schools for him. Just the question. We're in the top three, right? We're in the top three. It's just that the other two that we're in with is USC who, if you're a quarterback, why wouldn't you want to go be coached at USC by the guy Lincoln Riley, who's coached, you know, whatever, three out of the last four Heisman Trophy winners, or wh- why wouldn't you want to go to the place that's won back-to-back national championships? Right, with George. <laughs> so the on-the-field success of the other two coaches is the huge, uh, you know, um, elephant in the room that Nebraska has to overcome. Right. But yeah, a lot of the other stuff does play in our favor. The bigger challenge now, and and this is maybe the one negative is, you know, we we we've had a good player that was within our 500 mile radius, very talented uh, quarterback, not not in the category of the Dylan Riala, but a very good quarterback who is um, strongly now leaning to some other schools, Notre Dame, Missouri, uh, a lot of Big Ten schools, Wisconsin, all these other schools have offered him. We've offered him as well, but he's likely to make his decision before Dylan does. So if we if if we stay in it with the Dylan Riala sweepstakes and then lose and don't get him, we will have now lost a local kid who probably would have been available to us if we had just committed to to invest the time and resources on that kid and not Dylan earlier on, you know. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. That's one of the tough challenges of of uh, recruiting is, you know, you don't put your, all your eggs in one basket, but sometimes you have to be patient to, 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 to reel in the big fish. Right. Um, and the last thing I'll say is just with what you're saying about the, this kind of 
coaching jam session, you know, to figure out uh, what we're going to be. That's exciting for me to hear because we've talked about what like our offensive and defensive coordinator, you know, they're coming in with their own uh, philosophies, you know, the, the the defenses and offenses they have run in the past and what they're kind of known for as coaches. I'm sure they're coming in with aspects of that, but it's clear that Matt's whole you know, decision tree here is to uh, try to incorporate, you know, some of that classic Nebraska stuff, you know, with a focus on the run game and being physical at the line of scrimmage. And like we mentioned, potential fullback plays and things like that, but then also mixing in, you know, newer stuff. And so what we get may not be what we, you would expect, you know, just from looking at their resumes. I, I totally agree. I think, I think what we're going to see is elements of all of that. I think we're going to see a very diverse offensive and defensive scheme as these coaches figure out what their players are capable of doing, right? But uh, what I do feel confident about, because Matt has has always emphasized it, and so have a lot of the assistants, is their goal is going to be to take the athletes and the talent that they have on this on the roster, the guys that are on the team, come August, right? that are going to go into the season with them, they're going to figure out a way to take that group of players and make them the best they can be. And what if that means they have to change up the exact defensive philosophy or offensive play calling, like we're going to, we're going to have two players that were both regarded as their, the top two tight ends in the country for their, uh, their particular years, uh, you know, out of high school. I mean, we have the potential to have some phenomenal tight ends, right? So we got to find a way to integrate tight ends into our offense more than we have in the past. We just have to because we have that talent, right? That's looking at your roster and saying, okay, yeah, maybe I want to be more wide receiver focused, but right now I got to throw to tight ends because that's what I got. Right. Yep, you're right. They have mentioned that in several different interviews, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes with the spring game. Like you say, it could be uh, a bit of a mess, you know, with so much dance around their heads. But uh, you know, we'll we'll put our faith in Matt Rule and hope that when we're coming back to you guys in April, we'll be talking about some good news. There you go. I'm liking that. I'm I'm very excited. It's I think it's going to be great. It's gonna it's already committed that it's going to be on the Big Ten Network, so we're going to be able to watch it. And it's going to be a big, big deal. Uh, and uh, I, I suspect there'll be a darn good crowd like there has been every year. And uh, I'm just really excited. I, I've tried to avoid drinking the Kool-Aid, but Matt Rule is so much like myself, I feel, <laughs> that I can't help but drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> He's looking at a mini-me in the, in the TV. There huh? you go. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, we hope you all out there enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you did, you can email us at huskerpete13 at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Spotify. Leave a comment there if you like the podcast, or you can reach out to us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, So thank you all out there for listening, and thank you, Dad, for joining me for this episode. Until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.